This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. I want to start with a, a quote uh, by Wayne Grudem. He uh, wrote a book called Systematic Theology. Great book. And he said this, The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. He adds this one little caveat at the end, and he says this, However, we must recognize that many people, including God's people, do in fact misunderstand Scripture. That is why we're doing this series by... There's no way that we're going to be able to cover every last detail or of things that are taken out of context, but the goal of this series is to be able to help you understand Scripture and then apply that Scripture to your life. That's our hope. That's our prayer. That's what we want to be able to accomplish. And so our theme verse today, I'm going to actually read five verses, but I'm going to start just with the theme verse. It's Matthew 7, verse 1, and it says this, Judge not that you be not judged. And um, this is a big... Uh, verse because it's used on, in so many different contexts today, probably more than ever before. Uh, we live in a day and age where culture has made tolerance God. Okay? We live in a culture that has made tolerance God. And I'm so grateful that God is not tolerance. That was a great thought. I just felt the thud. Okay, there we go. Um, and so as a result, what we've created in our culture is culturally acceptable and culturally unacceptable language. Certain things that people frown upon, certain things that people cannot say because of the offense that it could cause to somebody hearing it. Um, and I most recently found out that we've even created judgment-free zones for all those that go to Planet Fitness, you know what I'm saying? And that's definitely the place that I would go if I were to go but I don't think I'll go. I just go to Walmart aisle seven. Anyhow, all right, we're moving right along. But for a Christian, this whole thought pattern lands on a couple of different phrases. You've probably heard them before. It goes like this. You're just being judgmental. Or only God can judge me. Have you heard that one? I've heard it many times. I've heard it more in the last three years than I think I've ever heard it in the first 40 years of my life. Because it's something that is intimately connected to the culture and the way that we respond to culture, okay? So I want to just throw up on the screen culture's definition of this word judging. It says this, to consider someone's beliefs, opinions, or behavior to be wrong. So the moment that your thoughts or your opinions or beliefs of someone else's life choice or someone else's decisions or someone else's opinions or someone else's philosophy disagrees with somebody else, culture has taught us that that's judging, but I guess the question for me is, is, is that what Jesus thinks? Is that what Jesus says? Is that what he lands on? Is that what theology says? Or is that just cultural philosophy? And unfortunately, Matthew 7 verse 1 in the last couple of years has become everyone's moral authority uh, for uh, creating uh, what we're going to call a cultural brand of non-judgmentalism. This is what this verse has been used for. So, I guess the thing that I want to kind of track through is, did Jesus mean it's wrong to tell others that they are wrong or to disagree with them? And I think from Scripture, we would understand and see that that's not true. If Jesus' prohibition on judging means it's wrong to tell others that their beliefs or their opinions or behavior are wrong, 
then Jesus himself is both judgmental and hypocritical. I want that just to sink in for a second. Okay? And if it's wrong to tell others that they are wrong, then Jesus was wrong to tell those people that what they were doing was wrong. But that doesn't line up with Scripture at all. Not even remotely close. So I have a thought. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me here. And it says this. This is just a thought, a quote I came across. I couldn't find the author, but it's too good. It says, when our understanding of judging leads us to conclude that Jesus is a hypocrite, we ought to reconsider where, whether Jesus defined judging the way culture does. <laughs> All right? So Jesus could not have possibly meant that we should not make moral assessments or tell others that their beliefs, their opinions, their behaviors are wrong since Jesus' ministry is characterized by these assessments. I'm going to prove it to you with one very basic doctrine. The doctrine of repentance. The doctrine of repentance says that there's something morally or ethically wrong with what you are doing and we need to repent for it in order to be set free of it. The problem with repentance is that it is the foundation, it is the core fundamental concept of which we base everything on. When Jesus, or actually I'll go right back to John the Baptist, what was the first thing he said? Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Jesus comes along. What does He say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Then the disciples are sent out. What do they say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Then the apostles taking over the New Testament church. What's the very first sermon? Acts chapter 2, verses 38 down. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. In other words, the doctrine of repentance is at its very core a fundamental theological concept that we cannot get away from. It is the very heart of God to redeem humanity from brokenness. Truth is the only thing that sets us free from that place. Truth is what sets us free. All right? So, what was Jesus saying? I have a, like a bullseye. Uh, Josiah, can you throw that up there for me? Okay, I'm going to explain this. And I, you, feel free to take a picture of this because I think this will be helpful for you guys as you're kind of studying the Bible, and you're getting things into context in your own life. I want you to understand that oftentimes people just go for the bullseye and try to get an immediate understanding of an immediate verse or maybe two or three verses of Scripture. But if they're not taking into consideration the other layers of understanding or of context, then we can often miss what God is trying to say. So the first thing that we have to understand is what is the biblical context? So I'm going to just kind of lay it out for you this morning with this particular theme. The biblical context is that humanity is broken and separated from the Father. Jesus came to span the gap, to span the divide in order to bring you to the Father. The problem is, is we are unholy and we cannot come to the Father because of our unholiness. But Jesus stepped in as a holy, pure, spotless lamb to take the place for us on the cross so that we could be set free from the plans and the schemes of the enemy to chain us in our sin, to set us free so that we can have relationship with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So sin is something that God hates. Because it is the thing, the tool that the enemy uses to destroy humanity. And it crushes his heart. So that's the biblical context. Are we good? 
All right. The second thing is, is what's the book context? In other words, the book of the Bible that you're reading from, what is it? In this case, it's the book of Matthew. And I want to just kind of lay out a little bit of background on the book of Matthew. And, and I'm hoping that as I'm sharing some of these thoughts, that you start to see this verse in a completely different context than maybe you've seen it before. Too many people pick this verse out and just have it stand alone all by itself without understanding the context. How many have ever had a discussion with somebody and the only thing that they heard was one phrase, five words long, and that's the only thing they remembered from a 30-minute conversation you had with them? Of course, that never happens, right? Never happens, ever. So this is what happens oftentimes with Scripture is we gravitate towards one, thir- uh, one thought, one phrase, one idea, one concept, and we forget everything else that's packaged around it. So the first thing we have to understand is what is God's biblical heart for humanity? It's to restore and it's to break the power of sin over your life. It's to take you, Colossians 1.13, from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. Light only comes when truth reveals things. Okay, we good? Book context. What is the book context? What is the book of Matthew all about? Well, the first thing you have to understand is the book of Matthew was written to the Jews. It wasn't written to anybody else. It was written to the Jews. It is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. As a matter of fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other Gospel writer. And it's not even close. Why? Because his audience was the Jews. His audience wasn't just a Jewish people. His audience was a Jewish people steeped in Judaism. In a religious mindset that actually was so far from the heart of God. Because it was steeped in rules. And it was steeped in tradition. So Jesus came. Interesting thought here in Matthew. Matthew is the only gospel writer to actually reference the phrase kingdom of heaven. And the reason he does is because the the phrase kingdom of heaven is only understood by a Jewish audience. It's a phrase and a term so unique to the Jewish audience, they understood exactly what he meant when he said the kingdom of heaven. Other gospels, it says the kingdom of God. But in Matthew, he says the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Jewish audience would understand that. So the focus of the entire book of Matthew was to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. So you have to understand this to get to the third thing, which is our passage context. Okay? So the main themes of Matthew, is, or there's four main themes to the book of Matthew. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, that the kingdom of heaven is here in Jesus. Number three, that there was conflict consistently between Jesus and the Pharisees. You're going to see more conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in the book of Matthew than you will in any other gospel. Why? Because he was bringing Christian ethics and exposing Pharisaical legalism. That's what he was doing. Okay? So... What's the passage? The passage in this particular situation is the Sermon on the Mount. How many have ever, how many have your favorite preachers, right? And probably once you think of your favorite preacher, you think of a message that has stood out to you, that has kind of stuck with you for a long time. And you could probably go back and even quote lines from it. This was the sermon of all sermons. This took up three and a half chapters in the book of Matthew, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And when you understand the Sermon on the Mount... This was the first utterance to the general Jewish public in a sermon form who had been reared in defective Judaism. So this is the context to where this verse is put into. Okay? 
Jesus was trying to say that he was the perfect lawgiver and exposed the Pharisees who believed that they were the judge and the jury of humanity. Okay, this brings a little bit more context to this verse, doesn't it? Hmm, it changes the ballgame a little bit. So as a matter of fact, the Pharisees are famous for creating hundreds and hundreds of extra books that were not canon in Scripture, not the Torah, not the Old Testament books of the Bible. And they designed it to create systems and foot-washing ceremonies and hand-washing and like all of these books on how to do every single thing so that you could be ceremonially cleansed. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. You can't add to me. You can't take away from me. I'm the fulfillment. And when you get me and you get truth, you're going to be set free. So this is the context of where this, this verse lands. So the fourth thing there is the immediate context. And we're going to pick that apart for the next couple of minutes if that's all right with you guys this morning. Okay? So you have to understand a key thought here. And we'll put it up on the screen there. A key thought. The Pharisees in Judaism had set themselves up as the divine judge and jury, the final court, and they were rendering their personal judgment on people as if they were God. And this is what Jesus stepped into. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes when he's confronting some of the wrong thoughts, the wrong philosophies, even the wrong theology that these Pharisees are living out and espousing in other people's lives. Jesus has come to correct that which was wrong. So in essence, right away, we know that we're supposed to judge, but we misunderstand this whole word and all the phraseology of it. So let's jump in. Matthew 7.1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. I want to just give a little context to a couple of things so you understand what we're talking about here. The word judge in the Greek literally means to decide, to condemn, to punish. How many have ever had a conversation with somebody and about 30 seconds in, you've already decided in your mind what you think about them? Of course, we've never done that, right? Never, never, never. And we're just so godly and just so, you know, humble and gracious that we just believe the best of everyone. No, the reality is, is humanity has got this disease where we make up our mind on people very quickly. And so what this word is actually saying, don't make up your mind on somebody before you know them. Don't condemn them because that's what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees put condemnation on people in order to change outward behavior. Jesus wants to teach us discernment so we can change our inward behavior. Okay? So it's changing the rules of the game. And it, I've got an incredible study Bible. I highly recommend it. It's the Spirit-Filled Life Bible put out by Thomas Nelson. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's the one we recommend to everyone. But interestingly enough, in my little note section on this particular verse... It actually cross-references the original Greek word, and it says that the word judge means to condemn. It literally means to condemn. So if we're remembering what Jesus is attempting to do here, he's attempting to expose the condemnation and judgments of the Pharisees on God's people. That's why Jesus says, judge not, let you uh, be not judged. So Matthew 7, verse 2, it goes on and it says, for with what judgment you judge. So the word judgment there, cross-referenced in my Bible, and you'll see it in the, in the Greek as well, literally means condemnation. So for with the condemnation in which you condemn, is really the real words here, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Okay? Matthew 7, verses 3, down to 5. And it says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank uh, that's in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what in the world can we learn from Jesus in this particular passage? Okay? So you have to understand right away, Jesus did not make a blanket statement on not judging. He simply pointed out biblical rules for judging, but not judging in the word that we know. I'm going to use the word discerning. Biblical, word, biblical use of discernment. How we are to discern those people around us. Okay? So, um, some people say, well, how do you know that's the context? Well, again, if you start to expand the immediate context and you go back to the passage context, you'll actually realize that a couple of verses later, Jesus, in the same sermon, with the same thought and the same theme, exposes the Pharisees' false teaching and the way that they put condemnation on people. And he says this in verse 17 down to 20. He says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here's the catch, verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. The Greek word know here is such an awesome word because this is what it means. It means to know accurately. How many have ever made up your mind and decided on an individual when you don't even know the facts? It says to know accurately. It means to recognize by discernment. And it means to ascertain. To know them. You will know them by their fruit. So let's keep this passage in context. Jesus didn't just say, judge not. But in the same passage, he confronts the false teachers and says he'll know them or you'll discern them by their fruit. So can I say this this morning? Has God called us to be fruit inspectors? Yes. And every parent that has a child in school right now said? I don't know about you, but I love avocados. I live for them. Although I have the weirdest thing, I don't love guacamole. I'm trying to figure out where my brain went wrong. But I love avocados, hate guacamole. Definitely hate guacamole anywhere close to a taco. It's just sinful. You know what I'm saying? There's a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have guacamole in a taco. It's there. I'm sure it's there. Ed, oh, is that out of context? I'm sorry. All right. Straight out of context from the pastor. All right. But I want you to understand, when I go get avocados... There is a painstaking process of evaluating. I never rush that process because I love avocados. And the most disappointing thing in the world after the Leafs lose is when I open up what I thought was this incredible avocado and I slice it open and I peel it back only to realize it's brown. It's not green. It's brown. And then the worst is when some parts are brown and the other parts are green. And then you think to yourself, I'm really hungry. Should I have that part? But what happens if I get my spoon on the other part? You know, I don't know if anyone else goes through this stress. I do. Okay? You just got into my mind for a second. I look at the thing going, should I? 
shouldn't I? What should I do? I don't know. And then most of the time I try it and I just load it on with pepper and salt and I don't taste anything. And it's all good. All right. But what does Jesus want us to understand with this passage? I want you to understand this. We cannot render the final verdict on someone's life. We are not the judge and we are not the jury. The Pharisees thought they were. Some Pharisaical Christians today think they are. But you're not. We are not the final judge. We are not the final court. We are not the court of appeals or whatever else you want to use. We're not the Supreme Court. We are not. Okay? So this is very different than discerning truth from error. This is very different than discerning uh, uh, deceivers from truth-tellers. It's very different. Okay? So we're clearly here to discern. But I want to say it like this. We're to discern not in the divine sense, because Jesus is judge and jury, but in the discerning sense because of the influence that could potentially come into your life. You have to discern it. You have to. Discern, yes. Final verdict on someone's life, that's Jesus. So don't take Jesus' role. But at the same time, don't give in to what culture says and don't say anything. Because truth is the only thing that sets people free. And the book context says Jesus wants people's freedom. The problem is, is just love won't do it. Truth, scripturally, is what sets people free. Okay? Love is the avenue in which we deliver it. That's good. Good point, Cameron. Thank you. All right. So remember, the Pharisees acted like judge and jury. They wanted to be the ones that rendered the final call, the final decision on someone's life. Okay. So I want to look very quickly at seven basic, simple principles that are hidden within this passage of five verses that will teach us how to discern well. Okay? Are we good? All right. So number one, don't condemn, discern. Don't fall into the trap of fault finding. Don't fall into the trap of having a critical spirit. Don't fall into the trap of judge and jury. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 7. He says this, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And the word there is actually to discern. Discern with righteous judgment. I love King Solomon. He made a lot of mistakes, but he got one thing right. At the beginning of his monarchy, he prayed a simple prayer and he said, Lord, I need something. I need you. I need your help. And this is what he literally declared. He prayed this. He says, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. This is a good thing. God honored Solomon's heart and gave him wisdom, which is why we have the book of Proverbs. Okay? Christians are to discern between what is right and wrong in our lives and when appropriately to help lovingly point out those things in other people. Why? Because truth sets people free. Culture says don't say anything that will make someone feel uncomfortable. Well, that's culture's definition. I am grateful in my life that I've had people that love me enough to tell me the truth. I don't know about you guys, there's always moments in our lives where you go through something and something sticks with you. When I was in high school, they used to have this group that came into the high school every year. And it was uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I think they still exist. MAD, M-A-D-D. Okay, 
And there's, I, I don't know if it was my grade 11 year or my grade 12 year, but there was this video that they showed at the end of their presentation, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. I can still see the screen almost in my mind's eye. And it was a, uh, a real-life dramatization of an actual event that had happened. There was a guy that was known as a troublemaker that had come down to the front of the school after school. Little did um, the person who jumped into the car know this guy was drunk. And he was a good-looking guy, so there was obviously, you know, some, uh, you know, some attraction there. But the, the girl that would have probably been prom queen... Um, and a bunch of her friends were standing on the side of the, the sidewalk there watching this guy come up in his really, really cool car. And he's like, hey, why don't you guys come in? We'll go for a ride. We'll go have some fun. And the one girl, the prom queen, decided to go in. And she had asked, can you just drop me off at my house after? He said, sure. And so she jumps in. None of the other friends got in and none of the other friends said anything. And long story short, about two kilometers later, he uh, drives literally into a median, she dies instantly. He survived. The screen goes black, and the phrase jumps up on the screen, where were her friends? I'll never forget it. We live in a culture that says, oh, don't judge that person. Don't discern that thing because that may hurt their feelings. And my response is, Jesus is more interested in your freedom than he is in your feelings. Freedom is why he died. He didn't die for feelings. He died for freedom. And I in some ways find it ironic we're talking about this today with Remembrance Day here. There are people that we have in our family line that have died for our freedom. They didn't die thinking about your feelings. They died thinking about your freedom. It's a massive difference. Now, we don't take lightly your feelings, but freedom is what Jesus died for. We good? Number two, I'm going to call it be careful of the boomerang effect. I had this little, my dad had this, uh, record player growing up, and we used to have these little 45s. Remember the 45s? I love them. As a kid, we used to fool around on that thing, and Dad never knew, so that's all good. He doesn't know still to this day. Um, and yes, we ruined some of his records, but he still doesn't know who did it, so it's awesome. Um, Lord, maybe I have to talk to him about that. But anyhow, so many years ago, Lord, he's probably forgotten. Amen. All right. But there was this one LP, this 145 that he had, and I don't even know who it was, but it was the Boomerang song. And as a kid, I used to love it. I, it was some group from Australia. I don't even know what it was all about, but it was all about this boomerang song about the boomerang that kept coming back. And I'd be like, this is the coolest thing. So I bought a boomerang. It never came back. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Why is it that they somehow figured this out in Australia and they can whip that thing and the thing always comes back? And then I tried and I throw it about 10 feet in front and it goes to the ground. I'm like, this is the, I want my money back. Where's my, uh, the only thing I got out of it was the Gingshu set of knives for $29.99. That's all I got. Throw away the, big, the boomerang. But you have to understand when it comes to this principle, there's a boomerang effect that goes into place. It says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And then it goes one step further and says, and with the measure you use, to the degree that you use that condemnation, 
it will come back on you. As a pastor, I've seen this many times where somebody does not deal with an issue in their life. And it just perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. And then they start to see situations and scenarios that start to affect them from outside. And they go, God, what's going on? God, why is this happening? And the reality is, is we're just reaping what we sowed. And God's saying, just repent. And then I can, I can do a little bit of a, a removal of your harvest for you. Whatever you've sown, I can remove if you repent, okay? The degree to which you condemn will con- come back on you. And again, that word condemn is key. The, the, to the degree that you make up your mind on somebody, to the degree that you decide about somebody or condemn somebody, that's what's coming back. There's a very scary verse, but I love it because it reminds me of to be careful what I say. Sometimes I listen, sometimes I don't, but you know how it is. Matthew 12, 36, 37, it says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And I don't know about you, as soon as I read that, I go, i got to be very careful, not just what I say, but how I say it. Okay? We have to be very careful. Point three, judge yourself first. Rules for living with judgment. Judge yourself first. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Okay? Jesus is not calling um, for an absence of moral judgments. He is rather trying to help us properly order anything that we discern. And the way it starts is judge yourself first. Discern yourself first before you say anything else to anyone else. Do you believe that? In other words, self-evaluate before you people-evaluate. And if you have a gravitational pull towards people-evaluation, get right with Jesus. That's all i got to say. When Jesus looks at people, this is the one thing that I've learned, and I've gone through these stages in my life where I did not get this, and now I feel like I do. When Jesus looks at people, He doesn't see all of the mess the way we see it. We see people that are filled with a mess, filled with issues, filled with problems, and, you, and we ask ourselves in our minds, and we don't say it out loud, but in our minds we go, Jesus, why in the world are you even wasting your time with this person? Jesus looks at them and says, oh, could you imagine what this person's life is like when they get set free and on fire for me? Come on! They can witness to so many different people because of the messes they've been in. That's how Jesus thinks. He doesn't condemn. Yes, he discerns. Yes, we should discern. We should be careful how many people are in our inner circle who are not tracking with us. We should be careful with that. But we need to understand God's heart. Okay? Search your heart first and repent of any sin. That's the key. Judge yourself first. Why is this so important? Well, if your heart is right with God then God will be able to use you to reflect His heart to them. If it's not, the only thing people are going to see is you. But they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus. Number four, guard against hypocrisy. Oh, we hate this word in church. Oh, it's such a bad word. There's actually studies that are found out there right now, and most people that um, are tracking in these different studies and asking why they don't like Christians, number one on the list is always the same. It's, Christians are hypocritical. That's the number one response of every person not following Christ right now. 
of the response of the church and of Christians is that we're hypocritical. And people have come to me and said, you know, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. And then I give them an answer that they didn't expect. I go, I agree. And they're like, what'd you say? That's a great point. I thought you were a pastor. I am. I'm also a hypocrite. How do I know? Because I don't perfectly follow what Jesus has asked me to follow. Therefore, in essence, I'm a hypocrite in need of a Savior every single day of my life. But it positions me to always have a humility before Christ, knowing that I can't do it. Sometimes we just have to be honest with those that struggle with the church and say, you know what, you're absolutely right. The church has done a disservice to everyone because of this, 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 and this. But we are a church that's trying to get better. That's our heart. Amen? All right. Guard yourself against hypocrisy. I don't know if you guys know the actual definition of hypocrisy, but it literally means a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. In the ancient Greek, the word hypocrite was used for the word actor. Anyone that would act in a play was called a hypocrite because they were acting. They weren't being themselves. And that's where the original word came from. Interesting, eh? And so God is simply saying, in order to not be a hypocrite, remove the log from your own eye first. Okay? Number five. Humility leads to clarity. First, verse 5, it says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The moment you humble yourself is the moment you can not only deal with your own log, but you can also see clearly how to remove the speck from someone else's life. The interesting word, the Greek word for see clearly, is the same word used in the New Testament to describe any blind person healed by Jesus who can now see. So what Jesus is saying is before you deal with your own stuff, you're actually blind to be able to help somebody else. You can't see it clearly. So you can't trust what you think in that situation. You know, someone told me this many years ago because really this speaks of the difference between condemnation and conviction. And I love this phrase. It's not mine. I stole it from someone years ago and I can't remember who it was, but I loved it. It says this, condemnation says you are wrong. Conviction says you did wrong. Big difference. When you come as judge and jury in condemnation, you are literally saying to that person, you are wrong. But when you're coming from the place of truth and you're bringing conviction in that sense, partnering with the Holy Spirit, you can simply say, you did wrong, but Jesus is here who can help you get free of that. Amen? Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. That's a humbling thing. That God's saying, partner with me to bring someone else to freedom, but be careful because you're not as strong as you think you are. You may fall into the trap of things that you never thought you would fall into the trap of. And I think if we're all being honest this morning, we all have that story. I know I do. Number six. Freedom comes from truth. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I want to say something here that I think is very ironic. It doesn't say that Jesus removed the speck. It actually says that you did. Doesn't that blow the whole judge not thing out of the water? That Jesus' heart is that he partners with you to help humanity be set free from the power of sin so that you can come into the dominion of light. 
The key is, is our heart right? Are we ready? Are we ready to partner with the Holy Spirit? John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's truth that brings everything else into context. I have a bonus principle. It's not necessarily found in these five verses, but I, I think it's a good one that really scripturally talks about everything. And it's number seven. I'm going to say judge scripturally. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Okay? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4, 12. I love this verse. It says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of that which is of the soul, mind, will, and emotions, to that which is of the Spirit. In other words, the Word of God comes and divides or cuts away everything that is culturally soulish. So that the only thing remaining is truth, is Spirit. So as it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So I want to come in for a closing here, and I want to land on a little thought that I really, really hope will be of benefit to you. I've really thought through this. I've actually been working on this message for over two years. And... I wanted to land on something that is practical, yet at the same time very profound, um, to help us understand what do we do with these situations and scenarios. So I have a, a picture I want to put up on the screen. Have you guys ever seen a sign like that? Weight limit 10 tons. It's basically talking about a load limit. And we know that if you're more than 10 tons and you try to cross that bridge, how many know what's going to happen? The bridge is going to collapse, and that which you were delivering from your side to the other side will never get there because the bridge will collapse under the weight. So we understand load limits on bridges. I want to read a verse to you, Ephesians chapter 4.15. It says this, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So what God wants us to do is to speak the truth out of a discerning heart in love. I want to put up a, a picture here, and I'm going to explain it to you. And I want you guys, you got your phone, takes a picture of this, all right? So we're over here. We have our truck filled with truth, okay? They're over there on the other side of the bridge that haven't received that truth yet. They don't know what that truth is. So what we need to understand with this whole verse is that the load limit of your bridge, and I'm going to say it like this, the load limit of your relational love bridge will determine how much truth you can carry across to the other side. I'm going to say it like this. If we're going to carry truth from us to the person on the other side, there needs to be a strong enough relational bridge for that truth to travel on. So in other words... Love is the bridge that truth travels on. We see that? Love is the bridge that truth travels on. You have to have a bridge of love in relationship that can handle the weight of truth. Because if not, people get hurt. How many have ever had someone you don't know very well say something very truthful that was very hurtful to you and the first thing that you're thinking that you're not saying to them is, how dare you? You don't even know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've had to struggle through in my life. And you're just making some blanket statement. You don't even know me. You know what I've realized with my five children? Discipline's non-negotiable. 
But how Sandra and I discipline each of our children are uniquely different because of who they are. There's one child I just need to look at. That's all we have to do. But we know their heart and we know how to speak to them about those things. The heavier the truth or the heavier the confrontation or the bigger the need for change, the stronger the bridge of love needs to be. We good? So the question that I have for you is your relational bridge of love strong enough to deliver the truth you need to deliver to those people God's put in your life? Because this will help us to determine whether we should speak into that person's life or just pray for that person. Okay, are we good? So what kind of bridge do I have with this person? Test your relational bridge with people. That's what I'm asking you to do. Discern, yes. Evaluate, yes. But then test the load limit of your relational bridge with people. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com. 